Waldy and Bendy. Hello and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they could not stop. Until now, that is. Because yes, this is the season finale. We came with the lockdown, we go with the lockdown. And if museums finally open up in Britain, we finally take a break. But don't worry, we're going out with a bang, a packed podcast jammed with marvellous art. Now, as you know, I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, sometimes known as Waldy. And I'm joined in this season finale by the same giant of art history who's joined me on all the other podcasts. In any other age, this man would have had ballads written about him. Troubadours would have climbed to the tops of towers to sing his name. Unfortunately, those days have gone. And today, all he gets is this podcast. But that doesn't mean we can't sing the ballad of Bendor Grosvenor. All we have to do is write it. Ah, oh, Bendy, that's going to be my post-podcast task. What, you're going to write a song for me? The Ballad of Bendor Grosvenor. Oh, my I, word. I mean, it's got a rhythm to it already, hasn't it? Da, 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 da. <laughs> the Ballad of Bendor Grosvenor. Yes, yes. Well, knowing your passion for... Um, uh, beautiful and profound lyrics, Weldy. I shall look forward to that. <laughs> Passion for bad songs. You've heard yeah. of the singing art critics. Damn. But, Weldy, I presume it's going to be a, a solo song, so it's, it'll just be you about me. Now, because you've, uh, we should explain to the listeners that although this is the last ever Waldy and Bendy... It's not necessarily the last Waldy and Bendy ever. It's just the last of this season, Bendor. Just oh, I see. Okay. So you're not leaving me completely alone at the, the podcast altar. Um, why do you go off and pursue greater things and, and your um, your musical career? Bendy, all that's happened is that the um, the lockdown has come sort of officially to an end here in Britain, you know. I mean, museums are opening. Um, and so, you know, that's the natural rhythm of the podcast. We gave it our all, and now we can go back to something else for a bit. But that doesn't mean we're not coming back at some point. I mean, you can't split up Laurel and Hardy. You can't <laughs> split up Morecambe and Wise. Um, you can't split up champagne and caviar and you can't split up waldy and bendy not in the long run no go i'm very glad to hear it so i look forward to the um getting the band back together for that that tricky fourth album <laughs> anyway so this is the season finale and it is of course packed this podcast always is because art never seems to stop throwing up stuff to deal with now later bendy and i will be handing out a final clutch of Waldy and Bendy Awards for the best and worst moments of the lockdown. And then on the wall, we're changing it up a bit this week and swapping things, as you'll see. Uh, and of course, because this is a podcast about art, listening to us isn't always enough. You might want to see what we're talking about as well as hear about it. And that's why all the art we discuss, all the links you need, it's all discoverable on the podcast page of zczfilms.com. So have a look. In the meantime, blow your noses and get ready to smell. Because we're heading for somewhere aromatic. Bendel Grosvenor had a farm. E-I-E-I-O farm. <laughs> ah, Bendor Grosvenor's farm. A little bit of paradise up there in the Scottish borders. Bendy, how's the farming going? 
Oh, very well indeed, thanks. And it's particularly aromatic at the moment because the grass is growing, the air is full of lovely sweet smells of spring, and we have implemented a new uh, daily routine with the donkeys, Weldy, where oh. every morning now, in the morning, I go and pick up their poos from the night before. So uh, it's very important for the donkeys as the grass grows to have uh, clean grass. You've got to pick up the poo. So I've had my aromatic uh, dosage this morning and I'm I'm mm. feeling much better for it. The lungs and noses are very clear. Mm. The ballad of Bendor Grosvenor. If he saw poo, he picked it up. <laughs> I'm a very tidy farmer. It's my Swiss heritage. You are very tidy. And any man that goes around picking up donkey poo, I mean, let's face it, that is beyond the call of duty. I can't wait to come up and see your farm. Um, I think I might go around it in pyjamas or something because I just know I'll never get dirty, will I? As uh, regular and long-suffering listeners will know from our episode about uh, Andy Goldsworthy and land art, that I need to provide you with Wellington boots because the only time I've seen you in wellies, you only had one and the other leg had a plastic bag on it. <laughs> yes, it's the latest fashion. Don't tell me they haven't done... Has that not reached Scotland yet? Oh, you're so far behind. Bendy, we've done most of your animals uh, on the farm, but there's one important bunch of animals that we've avoided entirely so far, and that is birds. I don't know how we've got this far without talking about them, but we're certainly going to talk about them now because they have a big, big role to play in art. They have a big, big role to play in life, and I'm sure they have a big, big role to play on your farm. So um, we're going to look through some of the the big moments when uh, birds pop up in art and, and, and discuss them and see how much we love them. And I thought we'd start with um, a bird that I don't suppose you have up there on your farm in Scotland, but funny enough, we do get them down here in London. There's quite a lot of them in the park uh, next to where I live uh, on Hampstead Heath, and that is parrots. Yes, we've got parrots. They seem to have escaped from somewhere and they're multiplying like crazy. So parrots have appeared in our, in various places. I mean, they sometimes pop up in Dutch still lives to prove that people have been to the Americas and come back with a parrot. Uh, but a picture I think we should focus on here um, is by Frida Kahlo. Uh, Frida Kahlo, a Mexican artist, uh, regular listeners to the podcast will know that we covered her in depth, really, uh, when we did our survey of the worst films about artists uh, and Frida came up I think top didn't they? they did incredibly well in the, in the list of really bad films but that doesn't stop Frida Kahlo herself being a really good artist um, and uh, Bender you must know this beautiful self-portrait she's done called Me and My Parrots painted in 1941 so it's her and uh, and four parrots you know it don't you I do know it and you've mentioned our overview of the worst films in art and I think Frida came second um, runner-up to Jackson Pollock film. Um, and, you know, I, I wish we had never done that because I, I can't help but look at wonderful self-portraits like this by Frida Kahlo and have terrible flashbacks to that film now. Uh, but anyway, we, we shouldn't revisit that um, disastrous moment in the history of the podcast. Uh, this is a, a very fine painting, as you say, uh, 1941, painted soon, I think, after the death of her father. And she is, it's a, a half-length portrait. She's got four parrots, one on each shoulder and two sort of in her lap. Now, I'm hoping, Wildy, because you're our resident twitcher, you're very keen on bird life. I'm hoping you're going to tell us very specific details about what these parrots are, because I suspect it may help us unlock the meaning of this particular picture. Well, do you know what? I am going to tell you what the parrots are, and that's only because I set myself the task of trying to find out what they were, um, and it took me quite a long time. 
to be honest with you, um, because did you know there are 402 species of parrot in the world? Or Well, mm. a few of them are now extinct. But basically, there are a lot of parrots. And a lot of these lots of parrots look pretty much the same. So uh, it was a question of narrowing things down, finding out what parrots might be available in Mexico at the time in 1941, uh, and seeing anything else I could find out about, about Frida Kahlo. So I can announce with some confidence that um, there are in fact two species of parrot here in this picture. So it's Frida Kahlo wearing a kind of Mexican top, trying to look a bit like an exotic Mexican creation herself, if you like. That's what she always did, didn't she, Frida Kahlo? And she's got these four parrots, and there, there are there are two pairs basically. So I imagine a male and a female, male and a female. Um, the ones with the yellow heads, um, those are yellow-headed Amazons, um, and the other ones, a blue crown with a with a bit of red above the nose, those are red lorried Amazons. So they're both Amazon parrots. So they're found um, on the coast of Mexico all the way down to Brazil. And that's the good news. The sad news is that uh, although the red lorid uh, Amazon is, is still fairly numerous and, and in healthy populations, the, the yellow-headed Amazon has become very rare. And of course, the reason it's become very rare, and it's indeed an, an endangered species, is because of the pet trade. So although in many ways it's wonderful that uh, Frida Kahlo painted herself with, with her pet parrots and um, in, in a way I think compared her exoticism with their exoticism. There's also something sad going on here, if, if you think about it. I mean, that's four less parrots in the wild and four more parrots in Frida Kahlo's house, Bendy. Yeah. Well, I too had a little rootle around um, trying to discover which uh, parrots these were. And I, I yield to your twitching judgment. I'm very glad you've done that it, because I think this is a, a world first. I couldn't see anywhere in any of the history um, of this particular picture that people had identified the particular parents before. Mm. So um, I, I'm very impressed there, Aldi, and I'm grateful to you. It's not easy, we... let me tell you. It's not easy at all. There, there, there are a lot of parrots around. Um, but yes, after a lot of narrowing down, I can confidently <laughs> put my name on the list. Uh, well, you've clicked at least 402 times to go through all the parrots. Was it that I hope it wasn't? Well, if it begins with A for Amazon. It was probably at least at the top of the parrot list. So. Actually, it began with Y for yellow, yellow-headed. But uh, okay. yes. Anyway, because I was reading in advance of this uh, an article by someone called Janice Helland um, in the Woman's Art Journal, uh, who makes the point, um, her big point, particularly in relation to Frida Kahlo's self-portraits, is that these days we tend to see um, her depictions of herself as references to her accident and the physical pain that that lasted, caused her throughout her life, and also her sort of uh, very colorful uh, romantic life. Um, and Janice Helen's point is that this, in fact, reduces um, what we should be focusing on, which is the sort of the, the social and political angst of her pictures. Uh, and in particular, uh, the Mexican nationalism. Um, of them in mm. response to um, threats, uh, as, as Frida Kahlo perceived it, from America at the time. So I think, would it be fair to say, Weldy, that, that since you have identified the parrots in the picture are particularly birds associated with Mexico, that we could actually begin to read something of that into this self-portrait as well? Oh, I think that's undoubtedly true, Bendy. And yes, they are Mexican parrots. They're, they're um, species that are found all over South America. But um, yes, definitely in Mexico. And I don't think there's any doubt about what you just said. Look at the year, right? It's 1941. 
And that's a problematic year in, in world history. Obviously, the Second World War had broken out. Um, America's involvement in it was confusing. Um, and there's a very good uh, moment in which Mexico would be forced almost to look at itself and see where it stands vis-a-vis, -vis, particularly vis-a-vis -vis America. And I don't think it's any accident that when Frida Kahlo went to America with, with Diego Rivera, you know, that she always wore Mexican outfits, that, that she became, as you know now, from all these trendy tote bags and badges and, and posters of her that are going around, she made a big thing of her Mexican apparel. I mean, her clothing became a, a sign for her almost. And the adoption, I think, of all these Mexican wildlife as well. You know, not in this picture, it's the parrots, but there are you know, monkeys and other pictures and hummingbirds. It's all part, I think, of, of a rather proud and, and forceful identification with Mexican history and the Mexican position. So yes, I think you're absolutely right in that. Good. But yes, we move on. We move on to another bird that I like to, to see if I possibly can. Uh, although in, in most cases, it means hanging around at night in dark forests. Uh, and that is, of course, the owl. And owls have popped up in art often and all over the place. And they've got quite a mixed history, but not, I think, in, in the art of uh, the person we're going to focus on. Because owls in this person's art tend to have the same kind of presence and it's not necessarily a very pleasing one i'm talking of course bendy about hieronymus bosch hmm. well hieronymus bosch is very keen on owls um I, i'd like to point out how well sorry aldi <laughs> i'd like to point out Waldi. aldi um, i like that aldi <laughs> is that your your bird nickname for today aldi um that if i can ever lure you up to the farm here in scotland uh, you'll see lots of owls we have uh, barn owls and uh, brown owls, and they, they flit about at night silently. Oh, and um, Hieronymus Bosch was obviously impressed with them because they feature many times in this picture, including one that we have discussed in some detail on this podcast, the Garden of Earthly Delights, which is in the Prado. Um, he seems to be able to cast the owls in a number of roles, or at least there is some debate as to whether he's casting the owls as uh, malign figures referencing uh, evil and the devil uh, because they are creatures of the night, um, or whether they are, are good creatures because they are often watchful um, and they can see in the dark where others can't, so they have clear sort of spiritual meanings. And um, I, I have an idea that you're going to come down very firmly on one side of that and tell me whether I'm right or wrong. So I'm hedging my bets and saying he might have been painting them as both good or uh, bad animals. But um, what are you going to say? I'm going to come down very firmly <laughs> on the side of bad owls. Oh. Um, indeed. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt in, in the Garden of Earthly Delights. Uh, the owl pops up hiding, skulking um, in the Garden of Eden next to Adam and Eve. Um, and since there's no snake in the picture representing the devil, I think we can quite confidently say that this, this, this lurking, sneaky owl hiding in the middle of a tree stump must represent the forces of darkness and um, the bad things that happen to you if you, uh, if you don't watch it, basically. Um, but the picture we've chosen, right? We, we've very specifically chosen a, a drawing by Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, it's a fantastic drawing, which I happen to have seen in my life. It's in the drawing cabinet in Berlin. There's a famous place where it's got a great collection of drawings. And this is, this is like one of the, 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 the most important things in the cabinet. And it's a very strange drawing. Um, and it's called, well, it's got various names, things like the Enchanted Forest, some people call it. Um, but the, the, the name that, that usually sticks to it is uh, the trees have ears and the fields have eyes, which is 
part of a, I believe, a, a Netherlandish saying. You know, the trees have ears and the fields have eyes. So you know, watch out what you do. There's always someone watching or listening. It's about mm. that. And I think, you know, so you've got this tree with um, ears <laughs> all sticking out of it. Uh, and you've got this field um, with eyes uh, sticking out of it. Very strange drawing. Um, in the middle of the, the picture in the tree, there is an owl um, sitting there looking at us. It's the same tree that's got the ears and the eyes are in front of it. Now, if you look in the face of that owl, I don't think there's any way it can be mistaken for a friendly owl. Um, it is without a shadow of doubt a slightly creepy, sinister owl. And I think the idea here really is pretty straightforward. Um, don't turn your back on the devil because the devil's always listening and the devil's always watching. Um, and so temptation and evil, they're always around the corner. That's the sort of mood of this weird and wonderful Bosch drawing, which doesn't get praised or seen enough, I think, Bendy. Mm. I don't know. I sort of see it as more a uh, slightly more general interpretation of the fact, at least in Christian faith, you're always going to be judged. I mean, if you look at a picture like the Garden of Earthly Delights, which uh, that's a good point. It, it seems not to have a snake in the garden with Adam and Eve, and there's an owl there, but there are owls littered throughout the picture. Uh, and they're often in places where there's just sort of, uh, perhaps in the crook of a tree or a little window in the background, and they're watching you. Uh, and I think you could say that um, the the owl is just the general um, view of, of the Christian faith, that no matter what you do, you're quite right, the owl can see you even during the day or at night, uh, and everything you're, you're doing is recorded, and eventually you'll be judged for it. So I don't know that it's definitely um, something from a sort of a bad or, or evil sense. And well, don't forget that Bosch would have been following on, um, you know, the long tradition going right back to the, the, the classical Greeks of owls being symbols of, of wisdom and prudence. Um, and it would have been quite a sort of dramatic change for him to suddenly recast them as evil creatures. Oh, well, it wasn't him that did it. Um, if you look back, I mean, basically... Yes, okay, if you look back at Pliny the Elder and go back to classical times, uh, the, you know, owls have a mixed heritage and, and the classical Greeks weren't down on the owls as much as uh, some of their successors. But throughout the Middle Ages, um, you know, owls had a very steady reputation as, you know, as the devil's accomplices. I mean, think of all the pictures of owls and witches um, because they flew around at night, because they are certainly sinister, mysterious creatures. Um, they undoubtedly were uh, associated with, with with the night and with devilish acts. And the thing is, you can't, I don't think you can look at Hieronymus Bosch and not feel the spirit of the Middle Ages in him. That's not to say he was in any way a backward artist or an artist who um, had no classical knowledge or training. I mean, he may well have had, but the spirit of his work is always, I think, uh, a highly fraught religious spirit um, right in the middle of these difficult times as well in the Netherlands, when you know when you were you were seeing the the, the beginnings of of, a, of sort of Protestant urges on one side and Christian urges on the other, and you know, if you look at his work, it's such a finger wagging body of work about not sinning and not um, committing uh, adultery and you know, all the, all the things that you feel in Bosch. Um, I mean, in the end, Bendy, I just think it's a simple question of of, of looking at this drawing and, and looking in the eyes of an owl. Is that not a sinister, so dark presence, this owl? Why is it lurking in the middle of a tree like that? Why is it sort of hiding? You know, th these are the questions. Why are those uh, happy-looking birds frolicking around it without really being aware of it? You know, who, who hides around in dark alleys and stares out at you? 
It's not usually jolly types, is it? <laughs> well, when you come up, well, they will go out at night at dusk. There's lots of owls here. They come out at that time and they, they flit around. You're quite right. They do so silently and mysteriously. Mm. But I'll, I'll leave you mm. out there for a few hours at night on your own with the binoculars and you can bond with them. And I can assure you that you won't feel at all threatened or being watched by a sinister presence. And, and can I, uh, following on your breakthrough fact about the parrots in the Frida Kahlo, uh, spot. Uh, can I inform you that the owl which Hieronymus Bosch most frequently depicts is a European pygmy owl? Is it? Well, that's yes. a bit big for a European pygmy owl, I would have thought. It was taking up the whole of the middle of a tree. Oh, um, not this particular one. I mean, just generally in his. In oh, his okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this looks more like a tawny owl. Um, you know, the. Um, that's the famous noise that uh, owls make, twit, twoo, you know, that's a tawny owl. Mm. And did you know that was two birds and not one? So it's it's the male going twit and the female going twoo. So yeah. it really is a kind of love song between owls. Yeah. Mm. You see, they're lovely birds, lovely creatures. Oh, no, I love them. I, listen, I'm not saying that I dislike owls. I, I, I love owls mm. and I can't wait to see your barn owls. But you do know that barn owls are the origin of the, the myth of a ghost. You know, it's these white things floating about in the sky that created the myth of the ghost. Oh. Um, so, you know, they, they do have this recurrent history as, as things that figure in the human imagination in, in dark and mysterious ways. Oh. Now, you, you've, got, you've got your work cut out showing me a happy owl. <laughs> anyway, let's disagree lightly on that um, and move on to what I think can be fairly described as another very, very mysterious bird. And I think it's a bird that, in my experience, uh, tends to get overlooked because it's in a very, very famous painting, but a lot of people looking at that picture um, don't seem to comment on it. Um, and, and the painting is a great painting by Manet, Eugene Manet, the French painter, um, and it's called Déjeuner Soleil. It's probably his most famous painting. And it's a great bird picture, isn't it, Bendy? Well, you said this well when you put it in your, um, your shortlist. Uh, and you sent me the link. And I, I had to say, I looked and looked, and I couldn't see the damn bird. Are you sure about this? You'll have so to have you found it or not? No, I couldn't have... find it. Bendy, I'm not saying it's a big bird. It isn't. It's a very small bird. Um, but if you go to the middle of the picture, basically the exact middle, and go high up as far as you can go, just before the edge at the top of the picture, you will see a red flash or reddish flash. Um, and if you zoom in on that reddish flash, you will find yourself looking at a fluttering bullfinch. So in Dejeuner sur l'herbe, right near the top with its wings outstretched, often overlooked, often missed, is a bullfinch. Um, mm. In a very unusual position, I mean, bullfinches, you don't normally see them with their wings outstretched like this. And I think that's part of the, the meaning of it, of course. Have you found it? Have you seen it? Can you oh, find it? Yes, I thought that, sorry, I thought that was a twig. You're <laughs> quite right. It's a bird with um, flying down. Yes. And uh, what's it doing? It's sort of aiming itself at the fellow who is disclaiming with his hand outstretched uh, towards one of his, his naked dining partners. Mm. Um, and it looks like it's about to fly down and do something on his head. But can you see, it's got a red chest, can you see that? Yeah, yeah. And you can see it's got a black head. Indeed. European bullfinch. Beautiful okay. bird. Quite, quite, um, it used to be very plentiful. There were birds that were kept as pets, as most birds were. Um, a bit harder to see now, although I'm sure there are plenty of them knocking about your farm somewhere or other. Lovely bird. Um, I always get a thrill if I see them. 
Um, but why, what's it doing there? Well, this is the big question, right? The, the, the big question is what's it doing there? And I personally think the important thing to notice here is its centrality, which is to say it's right in the middle of the picture, uh, just below the top, and the outstretched wings. Um, and I put it to you that in art, the, the bird that usually occupies that kind of position is the Holy Ghost uh, represented by mm -hmm. the dove with the outstretched wings. You see it particularly in baptisms of Christ. So mm -hmm. when Christ is being baptized in the River Jordan by John the Baptist, there's almost invariably an outstretched bird in exactly this position uh, in the picture. Mm -hmm. So um, I think, well, I'll come to what I think exactly it's doing there, but, but, but uh, now that you've noted it, should we just talk a little bit more about this painting, the Déjeuner Solaire, because uh, its ambition, its main ambition, I think, is, is the answer to all the problems. So, so you know about the Déjeuner Solaire, don't you? Uh, vaguely. What do you know about it? Uh, I know that it caused a great stink when it was unveiled in the salon, the Paris salon in, um, was it 1864, I think? 1863, and, uh, yeah. Oh, okay, it was rejected and Manet yes. uh, showed it at the Salon des Refusés. Uh, and this was a sort of considered to be a breakthrough moment in the history of French art. I mean, I must say as a digression, um, the history of French art is littered with people getting extremely agitated with pictures that are or are not shown at the Salon. It's, it seems to be a sort mm. of particularly French thing. But anyway, um, we didn't get quite so excited here in the UK with the Royal Academy. Uh, and that probably says a lot about us and our, our uh, relationship with art. But anyway, um, the picture was refused. Uh, it's become very famous ever since. It's in the Musée d'Orsay now. Um, and we see four people having a picnic. Um, one of them is completely naked. Uh, the two men are finely dressed. And in the background, we see another semi-naked woman who's about to have a swim or has just had a swim. Mm, yeah, what she's doing is another thing that we can debate. Um, but yes, that's basically it. Um, it. It caused an enormous fuss. I mean, this is the painting that is always held up as, you know, really as, as, as just about the most important painting of the 19th century, because before this painting, art was in the hands of tradition, if you like. After this painting, art was in the hands of revolution. And so, you know, the Impressionists, they were spurred into action and spurred into prominence really by, by Manet and, and especially by, by this great and fascinating and fabulous picture. It's quite um, a traditional picture though, isn't it? I mean, it's, uh, it's not really much different from um, Giorgione's um, picture of the concert. I mean, so uh, anyway. Yeah. Go on, this is exactly what we need to be heading towards. What you've just said is absolutely right, and yet it's also absolutely wrong. Because <laughs> this is my role on the podcast, right? No, because it's although absolutely right, absolutely right. <laughs> I don't think there's any question that it was prompted by Giorgione's great uh concert champêtre in the Louvre, which of course now is probably a lot of people say it's by Titian, but whoever painted it, it was a famous, famous painting, and that too shows um undressed women, blokes with clothes on out there in nature um, uh, enjoying themselves. Now, Manet has very, very deliberately set out to paint modern life with the same gravitas um, and bottom as the old masters painted the past. That was his deliberate ambition. He, he was the painter of modern life. And his whole point here is to try and produce, if you like, an old master picture in the style or the, the mood of the old masters, but using thoroughly contemporary subject matter. In other words, you don't have to be Greek or Roman, uh, and you don't have to go back to Pliny the Elder or Ovid to be able to find 
suitable subjects for great painting. You can do it just by going down the road in Paris to the Bois de Boulogne and watching what the students and the girls get up to. Mm -hmm. So it's set very deliberately in modern Paris. And you've got this young woman who's naked at the front. Um, this is Manet's great model, Victorine Morant incredibly interesting, beautiful muse. Um, and she's sort of staring at us, fixing us with this look as if to say, don't you dare disapprove of me, you know, of my nudity. The two guys are in some kind of bland conversation next to her. Um, and the woman behind, well, there's a lot of controversy about that. I mean, she's apparently inspired by a Votto painting, but um, there's talk that she may have, I mean, you know, she's either just been washing herself or possibly there's some kind of um, post-sexual thing going on here where um, uh, she's washing herself down. Uh, I'm not going to go too far into that because this is a family podcast, but there are, at least this is the sort of things that the, 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 the scary imagination of the 19th century bourgeois came up with when they're trying to understand this picture. Because imagine you go along, you're expecting to find Romans and Greeks and mythology, and instead you find this. So it caused an enormous um, rumpus and that was deliberate for, from Manet's point of view he wanted to raise the modern world to the status of old master art and I think that's where the bullfinch comes in mm -hmm. I think the bullfinch is a straight sort of borrowing a swap from pictures like baptisms of Christ and um, religious art where it would appear as the Holy Ghost and it's 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 in a way it's it's casting the humble bullfinch in this uh, important role that it has in in old master art of a divine bird a bird sent by God um, it's also true that we'll never know for sure because there is no, no letter or, or, or written text by Manet explaining all this but it's undoubtedly a sort of fascinating perpetually fascinating picture and the bird plays this key role in it once you notice it. Okay. Whilst we're thinking about that and studying that, I think we should move on to something a little bit more direct. Well, a lot more direct. Uh, this is a painting that I just have instinctive feeling is, is more up your street, uh, uh, Bendy, because I know you're not a particular Manet fan, uh, but you are a fan of um, Carel Fabricius. Um, you know, of course you are, and of course who isn't. Um, and I mean, this must be up there in the two or three or four most famous paintings of birds that we've got. And uh, it's another finch, by the way, um, not, not a bullfinch this time, but of course, um, the goldfinch uh, by Carol Fabricius, painted in 1654. Um, incredibly beautiful, gentle, small and interesting picture, don't you think? Mm, lovely. It's on display at the Moritz House and it's a, a real highlight of any tour there uh painted as you say in 1654 which was the year that alas uh carol fabricius died in that great tragedy in delft um when 90,000 tons of gunpowder blew up and squashed 500 houses including uh fabricius's studio and this was one of the last pictures he painted um it shows the goldfinch uh high up on a wall we're supposed to be looking up at this picture um, and he's a pet goldfinch, or she is a pet goldfinch, has a little tiny chain which is attached to its foot and goes onto a sort of brass hoop that comes out of this um, goldfinch's sort of, little, I don't know what you call it, little birdhouse or something, which is mounted on the wall. Um, a feeder, isn't it? It's a bird feeder. A bird feeder, so. okay. Mm. And underneath that, there's another little brass hoop that comes out. Um, actually, originally, Fabricius only meant to paint the single hoop. He added on the, the, the second hoop as an afterthought. Um, and I'm sure you know this, Waldy, but um, in Dutch, goldfinches are commonly referred to as putertjes. I haven't pronounced that very well. Um, but do you know what that means? No, I don't. I love the pronunciation. Uh, it means little water drawers. Um, because as you, as sometimes if you see goldfinches in other uh, Dutch pictures of the period, you'll see that they're doing a little trick. 
because you could teach a goldfinch uh, to pull up a little uh, bucket of water on a chain. Um, and that's how it would give itself a drink. So I think the second hoop in the picture here is the one that the bird would jump down on and then it would pull up the little bucket of water. It sort of fills it up with its beak and then clamps it on with its foot on the on the rim mm. and then pulls it up a little bit more. So they were pets. It couldn't fly around much, this little birdie, but it could do little tricks. Um, and uh, that's what it's being celebrated for doing here. Mm. They're lovely birds. Um, you see them in England. Uh, you see them all over the place, um, if you're lucky. And uh, this is, uh, I mean, this is a, a trompe l'oeil painting, isn't it? It's the same, it's tiny. It's the same size as the bird would be and the same size as the feeder would be. So when you see it on the wall in the Moritz house, it feels like a kind of real thing stuck there on the wall. Um, and I guess what they must have done, I mean, I imagine that in, in Dutch houses, because this is a feeder. I mean, if, if you've ever had a caged bird, you've got feeders in those as well. So the bird lands on a little perch near the little feeder you've got and then pokes its bill in and takes out the, um, the, the bird feed you've put in or drinks the water you've put in, whatever's in your particular little feeder, and then it flies off in the cage. But here, obviously, it's chained to the feeder. So all it can do is hop about from perch to perch and feed itself. But when it's so beautifully painted, isn't it? I mean, it looks how staring at us, utterly realistic feeling to it. Um, but there's the interesting thing about it for me. Well, you know me. I always bang on about the same stuff, don't I? No wonder you're bored with me. No wonder you want to move on to another podcast. <laughs> I'm always banging on about Catholicism. Aren't I? I mean, what can I say? I was brought up that way. This is me. But um, I can't help but point out that in um, religious art, um, goldfinches uh, pop up often um they're often held by jesus christ a little baby jesus is often holding a goldfinch mm -hmm. um raphael painted it titian painted it, all sorts of people have painted it and that is because the goldfinch has become a kind of symbol for jesus christ and it's because of the red patch on its face i mean this is the stories about blood from um, the crown of thorns splattering on it uh, and so there's all sorts of red things became uh, associated with jesus christ I and mean, coral sometimes you see babies playing with coral um, there's other birds as well, the pelican, because the pelican used to jab away at its own chest, they reckoned, and caused blood to pour out. So the goldfinch is uh, a very familiar religious symbol. And there have been people who said that this is a religious picture, that um, it's a kind of uh, a crucifixion without the Christ, um, an infant Jesus without the infant Jesus, that representing that spirit of the Catholic moment is just this single goldfinch. Um, almost, it's not crucified, but it's sort of hanging up in the air, really, suspended in a quasi-religious position, as if you're looking up at it in a church or something. Now, you know me, I'd usually go for that 100%. That's my kind of theory. I don't necessarily in this case. But I think it's just, I throw it in there because I think it's worth thinking about. Hmm. Well, Waldi, um, as you began this whole podcast series, I think in the very first episode, you said your catchphrase, which is, in art, you see what you want to see. <laughs> um, and um, I'm very pleased for you that you see so much, um, so much Catholic and spiritual meaning in a little picture of a birdie on a wall. <laughs> it's a possibility anyway. It's a fantastic picture. It's obviously grabbed loads of people's imaginations. There's been novels written about it. There's been films made about it. Um, and how wonderful that this little picture um, by an artist who, let's face it, isn't otherwise at all well known. I mean, he may have been a pupil of Rembrandt, but what do we really know about Carol Fabricius? He's an obscure figure, he died young, um, but just this one picture 
has really punched through and sort of everybody knows it. It's a testimony to the power of art, isn't it? I mean, one picture can do it for you, can't it, Bendy? Indeed. And um, if, if people want to have a little Google on the Moritz House website, there's the most fantastic sort of interactive uh, section all about this one painting. Well worth a few minutes of your time. Oh, good. Uh, that's goldfinches. Very, very small, very lovely little bird. Um, and now to a very, very big bird, uh, because the final picture we're going to talk about, Bendy, is a bit of a return to some subject matter we've treated before. We've tackled uh, swans in art before when we did the story of Leda and the swan. Um, but in that case, we we're focusing more on the eggs, weren't we? But here it's more on the bird itself. And we did Leonardo da Vinci's later when we last tackled the subject. So I thought it was important to try and smuggle Michelangelo's later into it as well. Because all the great Renaissance artists painted this famous myth of Zeus coming down to the beautiful Leda, um, God and mortal meeting. Um, and he was disguised as a swan. And so he made, uh, he made love to her, disguised as a swan. And the product of their union was four uh, very celebrated babies, two sets of twins, all of whom went on to have a huge role in classical mythology, from Castor and Pollux to Helen and Clytemestra. So uh, important kids are, are on the way. But that's not what we see here. What we see is the swan and Leda basically making love. Um, and the original Michelangelo has disappeared. Um, what we do have is a couple of beautiful copies by Rubens, don't we, Bendy? Yes, he went out of his way on a trip to Italy um, in 1602 to, to find this picture um, and make a copy of it. In fact, two copies. Uh, but I have to say, it's a curious picture, this. I mean, uh, as much as we always regret the destruction or loss of any Michelangelo picture, that is, until it turns up um, in your local neighbourhood auction house, Waldi, uh, miscatalogued as a 19th century pastiche, and you buy the original and unveil this great discovery to the world. Um, much as we always regret the loss of a Michelangelo, it's a curious painting, isn't it? I mean, he's mm. he's at his, he's having one of his very mannerist moments here, and Leda is sort of uh, very sinewy, limbs in slightly the wrong place, a huge thigh, a tiny head, and a toe which looks like it's uh, had, a, had a rather brutal accident. And in amongst this, um, you can just about make out a, a, a swan. I mean, it's not a, it's not a bird spotter's picture, this, is it? The swan <laughs> is kind of um, hard to make out. Uh, I, I don't particularly like it that much. It is a lost picture. I have to say there's a drawing, a large drawing in the Royal Academy. Have you seen this? It's often on display in the Royal Academy's uh, collection galleries, no, um, which was acquired, as these things often were in the 18th century, as the original Michelangelo drawing, um, and has since been doubted. It's got some really good bits in it, you know. But like mm. all these things, it's um, in terrible condition. We'll never really know. It's but it's it's mostly regarded as a as a copy now. But I, I wouldn't be so fast to write it off. Mm. I think what's interesting about it is that it's so obviously and so directly about sex. Um, the other ladies, I mean, they, of course, they all refer to what's been going on or what, what is going on and what's happened. And, you know, Leonardo's later. The only reason she's laid the eggs is because they've made love, whatever. But this, they really are at it like the clappers, aren't they? I mean, this ridiculous sight of, um, of, a, of a giant swan with its um, unmissably phallic neck. Um, snaking up between her thighs and its head kind of poking up and they're doing this strange little kiss at the top of it. And it is a weird picture. Um, you know that thing that Michelangelo's women have where they basically look like a load of blokes who come out of the gym 
<laughs> with some tennis balls stuck to their breasts uh, instead of instead of real boobs. You know, he, he really could not do women at all. But I think what's interesting is that is that Rubens has had a go at feminizing her. And I and I say this knowing that it's not the most obvious thing to notice because she's not particularly um, uh, appealing anyway, is she? But but the, the, the way that the, the flesh sags, the, the sort of roundness of her bottom, the way her breast isn't stuck on, at least it's got some weight to it, you know. Um, it, there is an attempt to feminize her. I'm not saying it's a successful attempt, but it, it does show you the a slight shift in the mindset that Rubens brings to the task. Um, and I suppose that's that's the good thing about it. Anyway, it's the poor old swan in art. Here we are. I mean, his most famous role is is to be Leda's lover. What do you think of that, Bendy? Uh, yes. Well, sometimes you see them um, stuffed in a banquet, being wheeled out for a great feast, don't you? Um, mm. But I don't mean, I, I, no, I I would not. Now, are we going to vote for for our favourite bird picture? Because this is this one would be bottom of my list. Well, I wasn't going to vote for it in any kind of obvious way, but I think we can quickly run through them, can't we? I mean, we could just say or yay or an a to the good ones, as, as we saw, because it's the season finale. We should do that, shouldn't we? Um, as we so we should charge up through the list and just say a quick sort of yay, good or or, or no, bad. But um, the Swan fingers down for both of that. Yeah, two thumbs yeah. down from me. Okay, Goldfinch. Oh, two thumbs up. Two thumbs up. Bullfinch in Manage Dejeuner Solab. Um, a thumbs up, but I still have to get my head around it. Two thumbs up from me for that one. Hieronymus Bosch's owl. Um, I like it, but I, I think it's a good owl. Two thumbs up for that me for me as well. That uh, and in fact three thumbs because I'm going to take one of your thumbs and stick it up as well. I'm going to force <laughs> you to put it up because it's so great. Um, Frida Kahlo's parrot. Uh, yes, quite interesting. Lovely painting. All right. Well, uh, three, three, three thumbs up for that as well. They've done well, but um, obviously the famous one is the Fabricius, the the goldfinch. But um, that's it for birds then. Birds on Bendel Grosvenor's farm. Um, we've done them. Uh, or we've tried to do them some justice. Who knows if we've achieved it? Um, but we're going to move on now, Bendy. That's that's the end of the farm life. Wellie's off. Um, uh, blow your nose, get the smell of manure out of it, because um, we're going to be dishing out something exciting. And it's the final Wendy's of the season, Bendy. Some good, some bad, uh, all going to deserving artistic causes. Um, so, as you know, everybody, it's been a very long lockdown, and we've been right in the middle of it. Uh, so, you know, what's impressed us during that time, uh, and what hasn't? That's the question. The Wendy and Bendy Awards. Oh, the final Wendy's of the season, Bendy. Um, yes, that we've been around for the whole of the lockdown. We've seen everything happening. And now we're going to decide what we liked and what we didn't like. So um, we've got a list of things we're going to go through. Uh, uh, and we're going to try and discuss... Uh, what we learned or what we saw and what excited us during this seemingly eternal uh, lockdown that we've been living through. Art's played a huge role in it, I think. Certainly as for me, I think as for you too, Bendy. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, my first idea was, sh shall we start with um, the best exhibition? Uh, precisely because there weren't many of them. Uh, the whole thing about lockdown is there weren't many shows, but there were a few. Um, and a couple of them were crackers, I think, don't you? Well, alas, I didn't get to see any, Waldy. Um, I know you did. I, I got to experience one vicariously, uh, or rather remotely, and that was the National Gallery's Art Immediate Gentileschi exhibition. And of course, I'm, I'm bitterly regret the fact that I uh, was not able to see it. 
Um, I did see uh, Letitia Trevers, um, the curator of the show, did um, did a good sort of uh, tour of it herself. That you could watch a video for that. You had to pay eight quid, which I thought was a bit of a scandal, but it was it was very good um, if you did cough up. So uh, it was a great catalogue too. Um, it's high time that Artemisia had a very good exhibition and the National Gallery did her justice. So I'm, I'm expecting you to, because you did go and see it, to say that this was the, the best exhibition of the last year. But you, you missed something out, Bendy. You, oh. you missed out. You, you mentioned Letitia Trevis's film about going around the show, but you missed out somebody else's film going around the show. Oh, um, Your partner, me, on the uh, podcast. Oh, oh. Valdemar Janusztak going oh. around Artemisia on oh. the telly, on the podcast. Come on, Bendy. How could oh, you forget you, me oh, like that? Did, uh, yes, there was. There was a you didn't see it, did you? No, you I, didn't I, of see course, it. Well, of you didn't right. see me going around Artemisia. <laughs> you did it on purpose, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm hurt to the It quick. was very good. Um, I, I just don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember it so much because it was free. You see, at our, um, the National Gallery one, I had to pay eight quid for and I was so fuming about that that it stuck right. in my mind more than yours. Well, uh, no ballad of Endor Groner for you, mate. Um, <laughs> look, it was a fantastic show. I mean, it was it was so noisy as well, isn't it? You couldn't really avoid it. Apart from you, that is, seeing me in the film, everybody else it was, couldn't help but notice it was going on. A lot of publicity, a lot of pre-publicity, and a lot of rumble about it once it had opened. Um, and I, yes, I, I went to see it a few times, and, and I did find it really exciting. And of course, the, the thing about it, right, is that Artemisia is renowned for today uh, as a sort of proto-feminist figure, isn't she? You know, her dark and interesting story. There's this terrible thing that she was she was raped as, as a teenager, um, had a huge impact on her psyche. And because she went on to paint uh, these pictures of, of men basically getting it and uh, uh, being violently struck and hurt by, by women. Um, so Judith beheading Holofernes. There's pictures of people having stakes driven through their head. Um, there's blokes being killed in all sorts of ways. And uh, there is, I think, a very um, easy route to take with Artemisia, which, which is to see her just as that, you know, as, as a woman who, for very, very good reasons, um, used her art to, to get her revenge, if you like, on men. Um, so you know what I mean, don't you, Benny? That, that's the story about Artemisia. But I think that's also the story that was challenged in this exhibition. Because for me, the thing that made it so interesting was that although that, all that was there, it's not as if you could avoid those kinds of readings, there was also an attempt to, 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 to paint a, a picture of a, of a bigger artist than that, a broader artist. And although I think the Artemisia in her early career um, could be seen that way, uh, you know, she lasted a long time. She had another 30, 30, 40 years of painting ahead of her after after her sort of opening moments. And she came here to England and painted here. She painted in Naples. She painted in Rome. And what was interesting in the show was to see the rest of her career, really. Um, and the standout feature of the rest of her career was that it wasn't like the violent stuff at the beginning. I mean, it became more like a, a more sort of settled Baroque career with these big church commissions and pictures sometimes painted with other people. So it was revisionist um, in the sense that I think it just reminded us that although Artemisia was, yes, a painter with an important feminist background, um, she was also far more than that and became something really interesting in other ways. Yes, I think you've 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 absolutely summarised it right there, and it was very good that the exhibition did try to get away from that sort of pigeonhole uh, story, which just revolves around the the early sadness of of her experience at the hands of of male sexual violence. But um, 
I think uh, it's it's sad in a way that art history and the press, when referring to art history, does tend to sort of pigeonhole artists like this. I mean, it's not just Artemisia who gets this kind of you you know you get sort of one sentence to describe you, and that's that's difficult to shift from. Um, the other fact, of course, is that we are discovering more and more about Artemisia, and new works are being found all the time. And it so happens that a number of the early works that are sort of more firmly recognized and which formed the cornerstone of her oeuvre happen to be pictures like, you know, Judith and Holofernes or uh, Susanna and the Elders, when in fact she painted a, a large number of very different topics and portraits as well. Um, so I, I think that is an ongoing process. Uh, the story of her life and her contribution to art will uh, will grow as we find out more and more about her, I think it's in a way a tragedy that it's taken 400 years uh, to begin that process. Um, that, that speaks a lot to the sort of the male uh, hegemony that has helped shape art history in the West. Um, and it's great that that is now uh, being challenged. Um, I mentioned more and more works being discovered. One slight note of caution for us, Wadi, as you and I are uh, keen devotees of auction catalogues as they uh, pop up on our screens, um, there's a rash of works quite lately being attributed to Artemisia, which absolutely have nothing to do with her whatsoever. So as ever, folks, it's caveat emptor. Indeed, it is always caveat emptor, isn't it? And certainly on this podcast, Bendy. Uh, but yes, I agree with you there. Best exhibition, uh, the Wendy goes to Artemisia at the National Gallery. Okay, next one. Best internet experience, Bendy. Um, we've all been forced to spend a lot of time staring at our screens, being on the internet, trying to while away the hours. Um, art's played a role in that. Uh, has it been a good role for you? And what's the best bits, Bendy? It has been a good role. Um, it's been a bit stop and starty in terms, I think, of the museum sector. Very early on in the podcast, well, we had a, we had a Wendy Award for the the best art museum websites and the worst. Um, and there were some very good ones. I think the Met, the Metropolitan Museum in New York, won the award. Uh, but mostly they were stinkers. And a lot of British museums uh, didn't perform very well in our survey. Um, I think museums, on the whole, have done a fairly good job of embracing this period of enforced isolation when so many millions of people around the world have been glued to their screens and accessing art for the first time. Uh, mainly through a website rather than actually through the doors of the physical museum. But, but by and large, I think museums have not particularly fared uh, very well. Some of them have tried hard, but particularly British museums um, haven't done that well, uh, partly because we're one of the last countries in the world to embrace what's called open access, which is where you abolish all the restrictions on your website about um, the, the type of image, the resolution of image that you as a, as a visitor to the website can can look at. So uh, some museums have done well, and we congratulate them. Uh, tell you what, Waldi, I want to give uh, the award, if I may nominate the award, actually. It, we're staying in the art world, but we're moving away from museums. I want to give an award to uh, the art market, Waldi. And I know I'm a mm. little bit biased because I speak as a former art dealer, but mm. I've been extremely impressed by how um, all my former colleagues in the art world have, have moved online completely. All the galleries and all the auction rooms have obviously had to be closed down. 
but uh, by and large they haven't missed a beat and they've put mm. good catalogs online really good high resolution photos uh, and the auctions have carried on and it's been a, a great diversion even if you haven't been able to bid and buy it's still a great diversion isn't it to to look at the auction catalogs it's a great way of studying about art so i think um i would like to give them a very large pat on the back for, for managing so well during the last mm. uh, year of crisis do you know what? I think they managed too well on that front. I mean, I'm like you. I I spent a lot of time, far more than I ever have done before, uh, online looking at auctions, and it, it, it was one of the great joys of the uh, of the lockdown for me. Um, I discovered uh, auction houses I didn't know and sales I I, I wasn't expecting. Um, and of course, the trouble with it all is that you then get tempted to buy some of this stuff. And of course, it all became clear very, very soon to me that I can't afford any of the things that are out there really anymore. Uh, because everybody else was online with me, um, <laughs> pushing up the prices. And some of the ridiculous sort of sums that were reached uh, at auction, I think are purely uh, a result of the fact that we're all stuck at home, we've got nothing else to do, let's go on the auction and buy something for a load of money. And that's okay if you're like me, um, you know, a, a sort of penniless London writer, um, or even like you, if you're a rich laird in Scotland. I mean, we're still in no competition at all, are we, for these mega rich billionaires scattered around the world who have been buying stuff up. So although it was great fun to spend a lot of time looking at art, um, it was also like, very noticeable that um, the prices just kept going up and up for everything. So people never really needed to see anything real anymore. Um, they, they, they just wanted to bid for it online. And, I, and you know what? I think that's a good cue for the next thing we need to go on to. So if the, if the best internet experience was you know, watching the art world growing, um, I think the worst thing that happened during the lockdown, and correct me if I'm wrong, but surely the worst thing that happened during the lockdown was uh, another internet experience, which I can sum up with one word, people yes uh, we we covered the auction live didn't we the christie's auction uh, where one of his artworks um digital artworks made 69 million dollars and we 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 literally fell off our little studio chairs here well as we uh, <laughs> could not quite believe how mad the art world had become i think you're quite right many of the crazy prices that had been achieved at auction during the pandemic was because people um particularly billionaires just were bored and had a lot of money to spend, and they just sort of sat on their sofas and their iPads uh, clicking away. Um, now, the trick, Wildy, is, as I've been trying to teach you for many years, is uh, when buying at auction, you've always got to be a bottom feeder, and you, you've got to find... There's still still cheap stuff out there, so um, I hope that um, even though the podcast is ending, I'll still be able to help you find that that uh, miscatalogued William Dobson somewhere. We can mm. get you a Dobson for a nice, cheap price. Uh, but going back to people, I'm not quite sure how the art world... Um, moves on from that uh, absurd price. I don't, do you know, I would not be surprised if we have lived through and are already seeing the end of the sort of um, the Beeple bubble because these things these days tend to happen so fast, don't they? Um, mm. I don't think the set of circumstances that, that produced a $70 million uh, bid for a digital artwork by someone who um, is, is quite good at what he does but uh, is not that good uh, can be replicated. Mm, I agree with you. The bubble, I, I'm sure, if it hasn't burst already, it's about to. I mean, the whole NFT thing, you know, this whole thing of owning something, basically in theory, 
because you don't really own it. There's no exclusivity to, to what to, to what your relationship to this thing you bought in an NFT is. I mean, lots of other people can see it. Lots of other people can have exactly the same thing as you. Exactly the same. Exactly the same people. Exactly the same set of trite comic images, if that's their taste. You know, they can have all that. Um, but the only difference is that in theory, they own it and you don't. Well, you know. Uh, there's surely will come a point when um, a lot of people will will wake up one morning and think, hey, let me. So have I done the right thing here? I've just spent sixty nine million pounds <laughs> on something that everybody else can have should they wish to, but uh, I have the great honour of uh, sort of owning it, even though uh, I don't really own it. I mean, it's a madness, wasn't it? A complete madness. And I, and I think it's a, it was like a sort of fever, you know, that went around. Same time as COVID, this kind of art fever went down, uh, <laughs> leading people down these weird, weird alleyways. And Beeple must be laughing. Well, he is laughing, isn't he? All the way to the big South Carolina bank, because, <laughs> I mean, boy, has he packed in the money there. Um, yeah. He's a lucky, lucky, lucky boy. We went round uh, one of the digital museums that houses some of Beeple's artworks, don't we? And it was, it was constructed by the same... Uh, people who've bought um, the, the $70 million uh, people at Christie's. And we were deeply unimpressed. Now, I don't think we covered at the time, Wildy, that uh, that virtual museum is called B20. And uh, the owners of it did what's called a tokenization. They tokenized it so that in theory, you and I can buy a piece of the virtual museum and a piece of each people NFT. So obviously you and I can't afford to buy a real people nft but we could afford to buy a little bit just a token of these people now I, I i say all this because i think it's a very interesting uh summation of what's happened with the whole nft story but when the price of a b20 token was launched in about uh, early february 2021 they sort of they started at around about the one dollar 70 mark right um, at the time of the sale at christie's in march of that year it shot up to 28 dollars, and now today as we speak it's settled at around about $1.90. So mm. you can go online, you can see the price of these B20 tokens, and it's gone from very low, booming right up to the top, and now right back down again mm. to the bottom. Mm. But none of it's real money anyway. So I suppose it just won't matter to, to these people. I mean, they're, they're not, it's not a real artwork. They're not the real owners, and they, they haven't paid real money for it. So it's just an unreal mystery, the whole thing. And it's just part of this lack of facts, lack of reality that um, I think was, was a big feature of the lockdown. Um, hopefully, as we come out of that now, things get. Uh, Things get solid again. Um, a couple more sections, though, quickly, Bendy. Let's get through these ones quickly. Um, the saddest thing that happened during the lockdown. Uh, I think we're in agreement on this as well. Um, we, we sort of agreed that here in Britain, uh, uh, and again, sorry, uh, listeners in America, I believe there are now 62 of you. Uh, my new listener in Costa Rica, Andres. Pura vida, Andres. Uh, this is for you. Um, and uh, I think we've got a, a couple more uh, in Crete. I think they've had a, a couple of letters from Crete, so that's good news too, and one in Germany, so it's all growing, growing. But anyway, the saddest thing that's happened here in Britain is the National Portrait Gallery, which um, absurdly uh, closed down for three years for a giant rebuild. I mean, how ridiculous is that? You know, you've got the gallery that's supposed to be the place where we get to see British portraiture at its best and most meaningful um, and it closes for three whole years um, that's a, for me the saddest thing that happened uh, I think I think you're in agreement aren't you there Bendy um, I am afraid Weldy and I say this with with great respect 
to all the people at the Metropolitan Gallery who I, I know personally very well, many of them, and I, I, I love everything they do. Uh, I just wish uh, this hadn't happened. I mean, the, the MPG in London is a very sort of special place for me, for reasons I won't go into, but I, I sort of feel anxious at the prospect that it's going to come back uh, significantly changed from the place I love so much. Uh, but more significantly, Waldi, uh, I share your concerns that too many museums are going through these huge refurbishments uh, and closing down for long periods. And generally, uh, those closures end up dragging on for far longer than the original period suggested. That may not happen in this case, but what I think is such a shame is that at this particular moment in British history, when we're going through so many travails, we've been through Brexit, we seem to have a sort of culture war going on when we're questioning ourselves and our history uh, more than ever before, um, and the government is, is wading in on that. We've just been through this pandemic where we are again looking at ourselves and and trying to find out the answers to why we have been affected in the way we have and how we're coming out of it. Um, and this was a this was a prime moment, the perfect moment for the best thing, the closest thing we have in this country to a museum of national history to lead the charge art historically and historically and help us reflect on all these deep and profound questions. And instead, they've shut the doors and they've gone silent. And the world is going to be quite a different place. The country is going to be quite a different place in three years when it's planned to reopen. And I just feel they've left the conversation, they've left the party at the worst possible moment. And I don't know how easily they can come back from that. Mm. Totally agreed. Um, I'm so disappointed in it. Um, uh, and I and I think they um, they let down the nation. I really do. Uh, but I also think uh, we can't just moan and moan and moan <laughs> throughout this list of Wendy's that we're handing out. And let's have some good news as well, I suppose, Bendy. We've got to find something happy to talk about. And there is a great thing that's happened just now. Um, I think the uh, the category uh, in the Wardy and Bendy Awards of the best lockdown discovery needs to be talked about, doesn't it? Oh, yes. Now, this is tremendous work um, at the National Gallery in London, where a picture by Poussin called The Triumph of Silenus, which has long been considered to be a copy, uh, as is so often the case with these things, it was acquired by the National Gallery in 1824 as uh, an authentic Poussin, but then was uh, questioned and sort of basically left in the basement for many years. Um, well, the National Gallery has been busy uh, during all this time cleaning the picture and doing all sorts of research. And in this month, in the Burlington magazine, which is uh, the sort of um, art history house magazine, a, a tremendous publication, which I, I urge you all to subscribe to because it's a great cause. Um, it's on the front cover, looking fantastic, this painting, as an authentic Poussin. There is an article by Francesca Whitlam Cooper, who's the uh, National Gallery curator who's been taking charge of this, uh, setting out in very convincing detail why this picture deserves once again to be considered by Poussin. Um, and it'll be on the walls as of next week for us to all go and see and marvel at when we finally get back to museums. Mm, it's very exciting. Yes, it's a Poussin. Um, they've got a good selection of Poussins there already, haven't they? There's 12 or 13 uh, in the National Gallery. Um, and I'm looking forward to a show that's coming uh, to the National Gallery in the autumn, which is, is it's called Poussin and Dance. And it's all about uh, Poussin, who is, of course, this 
French uh, Baroque artist who's known really for, um, for his lack of movement. It, 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 for most people, you say Poussin, um, they think of these classic still forms, don't they? And uh, Cezanne famously um, uh, was inspired by Poussin to try and repaint nature as something that wasn't um, changing all the time and in movement, but there was something solid and eternal, because that's the mood of Poussin's art, right? And yet he did paint a lot of pictures of dancing, or at least drinking, boozing, which is what's going on in this picture here, uh, the triumph of Silenus. Um, Silenus, poor old Silenus, is, is drunk on the left of the picture, completely blotto. Um, he's so blotto that he's leaning a leg on the back of a tiger. And the, you know, the, the tiger hasn't noticed. And everybody in the picture is sort of drunk and careering around and moving. Um, so it's not really a dance, but it is going to be the subject of this great exhibition that's coming to to the National Gallery in the autumn. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, but yes, isn't it wonderful this thing's been hanging around in the basement at the National Gallery for you know, the best part of 100 and well, nearly 200 years now. Um, and suddenly everybody's keen on it again because it does turn out to be a Poussin after all. That's exciting. That's great. That's a great lockdown discovery. So that's also good news. There's another great discovery, I think, in our next category, Bendy. Um, a great discovery for me, and that is um, the best newcomer, the best newcomer of the lockdown. And for me, and um, I think for you as well, there's no, uh, there's no doubt about who that is. Uh, listeners, if you follow me on Twitter at all, or indeed if you follow Bendy on Twitter, you would have come across an absolutely gorgeous personality, a kid who revels under the name of Sophie the Art Baby. Um, and Sophie the Art Baby, can basically recognize any picture you put in front of her. So all over Twitter for most of the lockdown, there was the increasingly impressive art baby Sophie telling you what you're looking at. Um, and just in case you've forgotten how, how well she does this, here's a little excerpt from uh, something new she's done. What a painting do you like, Daddy? I like that painting, that's by Kandinsky. Do you like Rousseau? I like Rousseau, yes, I like the tiger. I like uh, Sarah. Sarah? What does Sarah paint? The water. But, oh, she's so lovely, isn't she? And she's so right, Sarah's great. Uh, I mean, what a gorgeous little baby she was. And what a lot of joy she brought to all art lovers uh, on Twitter, don't you think? Oh, marvellous. Um, and in fact, Wildy, if, you, if you're going off to be busy doing other things now and uh, listeners out there are pining for more of the podcast, perhaps we ought to have uh, Sophie and Bendy's Adventures in Art in your absence. So she, she can keep your seat warm for you. But I tell you what, Wildy, I was interested that in the clip that you chose not to play for um, uh, to demonstrate Sophie's great art talents uh, was a clip that she sent me on Twitter, uh, which is where she made the final adjudication um, following our rather ill-advised debate last week uh, about who was better, William Dobson or Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Um, and uh, we can exclusively reveal to the listeners that she, in fact, chose Sir Anthony Van Dyke. You had to mention it. Didn't you? <laughs> you had to mention it. You had to go there. Yes, listeners, um, I was hoping I'd be able to sneak through this uh, season finale without, without having to admit um, that in the great Van Dyke versus William Dobson contest, uh, I'm afraid I was whooped. Um, the, the latest figures are 58.5% uh, 
uh, voted for Van Dyke and 42.5% uh, voted for William Dobson. Um, so there are some who would see that as a victory for Dobson, of course, because he is the unknown. He's the underdog. He's the little man fighting and punching above his weight. Um, but uh, it's also true that once uh, Art Baby Sophie had had waded in with uh, the Van Dyke choice. Uh, I'm afraid I was finished, I was sunk. So, um, yep, uh, it's official. Uh, Van Dyke wins in the uh, Waldy and Bendy uh, Battle of the Baroque. Um, so let's move on ever so quickly from that. No, no, you can't talk anymore about that. We are moving straight on very, very quickly to the final little thing we need to talk about, which is the most joyful thing to happen in the lockdown. And no, you can't say that it's Van Dyke beating William Dobson again. You've just said that. There's something else that's happened, and that is, of course, the damn thing has finally finished, you know. What a relief. The lockdown is over here in Britain, folks, um, and uh, the museums are opening. Isn't that just uh, nothing but joy, Bendy? Oh, tremendous. Um, I did very briefly manage to get into the National Gallery in that sort of pause we had in the lockdown last year, didn't we, where we rather unfortunately thought that everything was over and before the vaccines had, had been developed. And uh, I didn't really enjoy looking at art uh, still feeling under siege like that. We all had our masks on and as it happens that time in London, I did actually catch COVID. But um, now I just cannot describe how um, excited I am to go back to a museum, to stand in front of a painting, Rowdy, uh, with other people, admiring it together, knowing pretty much that for the moment, it's all looking pretty good in this country. Um, and to look at art and appreciate it uh, with such joy uh, and happiness. Mm, that's right. So the final Waldy and Bendy Award um, goes to the end of the lockdown. Uh, we're all happy about that. Um, I don't really want to talk about it anymore because, frankly, I want to uh, go out and, and, and see the museums right now. So let's get to the end of this podcast as soon as we can. We've only got one great thing to deal with, haven't we? Um, we're nearly there. But there is the, the thing that everybody always wants to, to hear, the thing that has brought us more joy than anything on this podcast, I think. Um, and you know what it is. I don't need to tell you. On the wall. Oh, on the wall, Bendy, the final on the wall for this uh, season. So the season finale on the wall. And I believe you've changed it up a bit, haven't you? You've made it a little bit different. Well, about it now that the lockdown is over, uh, there's really no grounds for us to be taking uh, great masterpieces from museums. We've got to give everything back. So we have mm. to take all our choices from on the wall, uh, take them down from your enormous palazzo there in North London, mm. um, and hand them back to the museums. We've taken them from around the world. And instead, we're going to just choose one, which in theory we'd like to keep. And we're also going to choose one from our own choices that we would like to let you, the other person, have on their wall. So who's going to go first? Well, I... If you're telling me out of the myriad things that uh, we've managed to smuggle out of the great museums of the world and have on our wall, which one I would like to keep most, um, uh, I have to say, do you know what? It was quite an easy choice. There is one thing that I've picked that makes my tongue loll out, uh, my eyes roll, uh, and, and the saliva spurt out of me in bucket loads. And that is um, Rembrandt's great painting of the Polish rider. Mm. For all sorts of reasons, it's the picture that hangs in the Frick collection. 
Um, it's so mysterious. It's so unlike Rembrandt in some ways. And of course, the fact that I'm Polish and the guy on the horse is Polish, um, you know, it just strikes a chord with me. And um, it's a painting I've dreamt about for pretty much all my adult life. And it seems to me that if I can actually get away with having this gorgeous thing, taking it out of the Frick collection and you're having it in my house forever, you bet that's what I'm going to do. So yes, it's Rembrandt's Polish rider, the masterpiece on a horse. Well, I've decided to be a little bit more altruistic in my choice because I'm going to keep um, Raphael's portrait of a young man, which uh, has been missing since the Second World War. So I feel I can still have it here a little bit longer, knowing that I'm not denuding anyone of the pleasure of seeing it other than uh, the villains who have it on their walls at the moment. That is, if it still exists. Uh, mm. So I'm going to have that on my wall. It's a fantastic portrait. Raphael at his absolute best. Some people say it's a self-portrait. It might well be. But the other reason I'm going to keep it, Wildy, is because this portrait, uh, this great masterpiece by Raphael, was taken by the Germans in the Second World War from a Polish collection. And the name of that collection was, and I'm going to say it now beautifully because you taught me how to pronounce it, the Czartoryski collection. Oh, very, very good. A lot better than the last time you tried it. Yeah, I mean, that's, of course, a great collection in Krakow, where um, the most famous painting they have there is Leonardo da Vinci's Lady with the Ermine, which is another great masterpiece. Well, that's fantastic of you. You might even have some Polish blood in you in there somewhere because, um, you know, you're generous, you're romantic, they write ballads about you. I mean, that's very Polish, all that. Hmm. Well, it'll remind me with this Polish provenance of, of the many happy hours I spent with you uh, throughout the lockdown. And the picture I'm going to decide to send you there to your vast art gallery in the flat in North London is uh, one of my choices. It's from the Prado, Waldi. Uh, it is a painting of the artist Martin Rickard, and it's by Sir Anthony Van Dyke. Uh, and it's a beautiful, the most beautiful depiction in the 17th century of truth in art. And I think uh, it shows Martin Rickert uh, sitting in a chair, facing the viewer. He's only got one arm. He's clenching the other arm of the chair with his fist. It's the most beautifully painted hand in the whole of the 17th century. And if you look very closely at his eyes, Waldy, he's crying. He's sad. He's in tears. And this picture is going to uh, stare at you uh, and remind you that nobody does it better than good old Antoon Van Dyke. You cruel, cruel man. You devil in trousers. I know exactly what you're doing there. And to think that I had something so generous lined up for you. <laughs> because I was going to send you, I am going to send you, the Top Carpy Dagger. You know, Ooh. do you remember I, I chose the Top Carpy Dagger because <laughs> it had the, the biggest emeralds in the world in it. Um, and it was a gorgeous implement made by the sultans of, of the Ottoman Empire. Um, and I've always thought that up there in Scotland where it's so dark and bleak and on your muddy farm, you know, I've always thought to myself all the way through this podcast, poor old Bendy needs a bit of cheering up. Well, you know, you're going to open this package and you're going to see this gorgeous thing studded with emeralds and rubies, but it's also a dagger, a knife, so you can take it out and you can whittle things in your garden. You can write, Bendy loves Waldy on the trees. You know, you can use it to shear your sheep if you want. Just cut some of that wool off them. So it's going to be practical. Um, uh, and just imagine what a thrill it's going to be to get the top carpet dagger 
muddy on your farm. So unlike you, um, I've, I've displayed real generosity here. Um, but um, I, I must say, it's a great Van Dyke painting. Um, and even though you think all you're doing is getting at me by sending it to me, I promise you I will in fact get a lot of pleasure and joy from it. Um, so Bendy, that's it there. We've swapped our gifts, we've chosen our pictures. Um, there's one more person that wants to say something on the podcast uh, for this, the season finale. We have um, a bit of a star, a bit of an art star, just to say something. So here we go. Bye-bye, Wally and Bendy. There's nothing better than art. Oh, she's so lovely. Art baby Sophie saying goodbye to the, uh, to the podcast. Oh, I love her so much. Um, Bendy. I have had so much fun doing this. Um, if it wasn't for doing this podcast with you, um, I think the lockdown would have got to me. You've been a great source of uh, encouragement, interest, facts, a little bit of cruelty when it comes to Van Dyke, but hey, I'll forgive you for that. Um, I thank you so much for your company. It's been so educative and such a great pleasure. What a joy to do this podcast with you. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you, Wildy. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure. It's been such fun. And I, you've taught me a great deal. You really have. I remember the first time I saw you, Wildy, was in um, Christie, South Kensington, about 20 years ago. Uh, you had no idea, of course, who I was. I was just a sort of um, enthusiastic auction visitor. And I, I came up and, and summoned the courage to tell you how much I admired your columns. And you um, looked embarrassed and shuffled off. Uh, but uh, mm. I'm such an admirer of yours. And I, I learned so much from you still. Um, and this has been a pleasure. And we say also thank you to uh, producer Taya for holding our hand and doing everything for us uh, in the podcast, making us sound vaguely sensible and coherent. And we say thank you also to our listeners, wherever you are. We do. We do. And also to Simon Russell, who does the jingles, the great jingles. Um, yeah. So a lot of people to thank. But hey, listen, the museums have opened up, Bendy. You and I are free. Let's get out there and gorge ourselves on them. Yes. And very quickly, we should also say, I want to say a special thank you to any listeners who've been involved um, in as key workers or in the NHS or in vaccine development. We are absolutely in your debt. And if you are in a part of the world where the lockdown is not ending, we send you our love and best wishes. And we hope to see you all together soon. From me, it's goodbye. And cheerio from me. Waldy and Bendy.